Welcome to Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Join me, your host, Sam Wiles, as we discover the history, the music, and the man behind it all, Paul McCartney. To get in contact with the show, email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Welcome to Hello, hello, hello. Greetings. Welcome one and all to another episode of Paul or Nothing. It's widescreen podcasting and the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. Of course, I am your host, Sam Wiles. Thank you all for downloading the show and I hope you're all good, well and safe. Today, we're going to be doing one of our formats that we haven't done in absolutely ages here, which will be a nice change of pace for all, don't you think? That being said, we're going to go back through the vaults of the Paul or Nothing blog, aka paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com, and the article in particular that inspired this little session today was my review of every single Paul McCartney album cover. It was, admittedly, a very fun article to write, and it was an episode I always knew we were going to eventually transpose over to the podcast, because my god, does Mac have a lot of album covers. But... That's not all, folks. This easily could have been a regular old solo episode. But since everyone's got an opinion on McCartney's artwork, it was always going to be one of those shows that begged at least another voice. However, we don't just have one guest or one voice today, folks. We have three, making this the podcast's first four-way conversation. Yes, you've all read the title correctly. I will indeed be speaking with Talia, Phoebe and Diana from the Another Kind of Mind podcast. I'm sure you are all already aware of Another Kind of Mind. But if not, let me let me just say, it's one of the most exciting, interesting and revelatory Beatles podcasts out there on the market right now. Many Beatles shows try and give you new information or they try and fill in the gaps. Whereas Another Kind of Mind are able to take stuff you may already know and make you recontextualise it and make you think about it in a completely new and different way. It's awesome. I've mentioned them on the show before many a time. I'm a big old fan. As you can tell, go check out their show. Links down below. Now, normally, as you know, I wait till the housekeeping to bring up my guest, even though their names are always in the title. But there is a bit more context to this here. Originally, the conversation you were about to hear was going to be a single long recording. And maybe after a shortish introductory interview, we would begin briskly working our way through the Paul McCartney album covers. But as you will see by the end of this episode, it's incredibly difficult for us four to discuss the album artwork and then not discuss the albums themselves and other topics that spring forth. You know my digressional tendencies, folks. And my three guests certainly did not help that. So instead, this is going to be the first of an informal intermittent side series. At the time of this recording, I and the AKOM gang have already recorded the second part of this conversation with a third part already on the way. So yeah, folks, you've got such a treat coming your way. Um, Something I'm also a little too aware uh, on my podcast as the host is my nature to talk over guests and maybe dominate conversations here and there and I know the best interviewer is someone who just sits there and listens and with that in mind the best thing about the conversation you are going to hear on this episode is that there are going to be huge swaths of airtime where it's essentially just going to turn into a bonus episode of another kind of mind 
However, before we can introduce any of that, there is the matter of the housekeeping. Housekeeping! Right, same as last week, just a little bit of news to start us off. If you all cast your minds back a few months ago, you will remember my swap cast with Anthony Rotuno from the excellent Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast. And he's gone and released the same chat, but over on his channel. So please, folks, even if you have already listened to that episode, but especially if you haven't, go and check out my appearance on Glass Onion on John Lennon. And hey, whilst you're there, please be sure to give all of Anthony's other smashing podcasts a peruse whilst you're there. And on the same note, my first appearance on the When They Was Fab podcast with Ed Chen and Lonnie Pena is now online also. Of course, we had Ed here on the show for our last episode, and we had a blast. So if you enjoyed mine and Ed's ramblings, then go and check out When They Was Fab, where you can see what it's like where I actually have to stick to a format, some rules, and I'm not allowed to rant for three hours to make my points. Links down below show Ed, Lonnie, and Anthony the poor or nothing love. To get in contact with the show, please email us at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I always want to know your Paul McCartney stories and trivia, any weird or wonderful events surrounding Paul that have happened to you. Maybe you need to take me up on one of my reviews. Maybe you want to warn me about something coming up in the future. I want to hear it all. And we do indeed have one quick email to read out today. That's from one of our regular contributors, David Jackson. And this is concerning the aforementioned music videos episode I did with Ed concerning all of McCartney's early 80s stuff. David says, Hi Sam, mixed feeling about Paul's videos from this time. On the positive side, I was one of the lucky fan club members who attended the video shoot of the Take It Away music video, which, through a long and protracted day, did mean I spent some time within a few metres of Paul, George Martin, Ringo and Linda, as well as John Hurt, Steve Gadd and Eric Stewart. I even managed to get Paul and George Martin's autographs by leaving my address, and a few days afterwards, a postcard arrived bearing their autographs upon it. It is now one of my most treasured Beatles items. I'd love to find out what your most treasured Beatle item is, David, if that's only one of them. Sadly, no Ringo or Linda autographs were enclosed, which probably accounts in Linda's case on her lovely modesty as she didn't see herself as a star. And with Ringo, it was probably the sad decision that he may have seen himself being above signing fans' autographs. He may also have been too embarrassed by his hair perm and was possibly pissed. I must admit, I like the tug-of-war video that you dismayed as a purely performance video. My gripe is with the Ebony and Ivory song video and the Say 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 video, which made Paul to be a laughingstock through my university days in the early 80s. It was at a time when British music was edgy and the new wave was popular. And yet, here was one of the Beatles becoming a showbiz, Danny LaRue-type cabaret entertainer. It's a wonder he didn't appear on The Good Old Days. Though, thankfully, Paul did soon discover, post-Flowers in the Dirt, that he is indeed a musician. On the topic of the Give My Regards to Broad Street film, apart from the great No More Lonely Nights song, it fits into that laughable 80s period. However, though, I was still lucky enough to attend the film's premiere in Liverpool, so again, I was in the presence of Paul and Linda, which more than made up for the terrible film. Loving the podcast, Sam. Regards. David Jackson. And 
Thank you so much for that, David. It's always it's always nice to have your correspondence in as usual. I cannot believe that not only does everyone who listens to this podcast seem to have a Butcher Cover Beatle album and a Paul McCartney autograph, but I feel like everyone who listens to this show also has been in a Paul McCartney music video, met Paul ten times, and had a veggie sandwich with Linda. I really do feel like I'm missing out being born in 1992. But yeah, it's always nice to have some first-hand eyewitness accounts of the so-called Paul McCartney uncool phase. Though, I guess there's a certain, not stubbornness, but resilience that comes with being a Paul McCartney fan, where you do stick with him through thick and thin. So yeah, thanks again for the email, David. If you want to be like David, please drop in an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter as well for day-to-day updates. That's at McCartneyPod. Follow us on our blog. The blog is indeed back. Check out paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube. Simply by typing in Paul McCartney Podcast or Paul or Nothing. And if you want to help out the the show right here, right now, then please consider leaving us a five-star review on whatever platform you are listening to the show on. It always helps us out in the algorithms and gives us the exposure we need. And hey, it's free, so if you have a spare 10 seconds, I'd really appreciate that. If you have a spare few dollars, then please consider checking out our Patreon page. Patreon is a service that allows you, the public, to support independent content creators, hacks, frauds, and confidence tricksters like me through a donation of a couple of dollars a month. If you like the show, if you like what I've been doing, you know, this is all ad-free. I do this whilst I'm full-time at work as well. And if you want to see the show grow, if you want to see us have new equipment, new guests, do different types of things, then please consider joining our list of loyal patrons so as always huge shout out to our patrons today folks so massive thank yous to stephanie miller louis dinlardo Stuart cook cheryl mccoy katrina s sam hode anastasia p robert carabelli and the old guard the ogs tony vosol warren butson and my main man matt phillips who even just recorded an episode where we reviewed live and let die together so yeah, thank you to everyone who supports this show. I cannot believe people out there throw money at me down the internet every month. It is always appreciated and you guys are the lifeblood of the show. You get me up every morning, so thank you for that. And now that we have all of that out of the way, I think it's high time that I brought out my guest, or guests, should I say. Because I cannot possibly tackle all of these album covers by myself. And now that we've gotten all of the admin out of the way, folks, it's high time that I introduce my guests. And, yeah, I did say guests. There is a plural there, a big plural. This is our very first episode with more than one guest. But considering the pedigree of these folk, I could not have just spoken with one of them. Luckily enough, I've managed to bag all three. They are the hosts of Another Kind of Mind, which is not only one of the best new Beatles podcasts, but it's also effortlessly one of the greatest Beatles podcast of all time yeah. the beginning Ooh. of platform. oh pat yourselves on the back everyone we've <laughs> <laughs> released a podcast after my own heart because not only is the main goal celebrating the beatles but it's to challenge the myths and misconceptions that have been following them since 63 and you give paul a fair shake on the show which i can only thank you for 
Ladies and gents, trans folk, queer folk, non-binaries, gender neutrals, gender fluids, and everyone else in between, please welcome my three favourite voices in new Beatles media, the hosts of Another Kind of Mind, Diana, Phoebe, and Talia. Ladies, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Hello. Thank you. Hi. It is my pleasure just to uh, peel back the curtain a little bit for everyone listening at home. We've actually been speaking for an hour and a half at this point. (laughs) Um, We've actually tried to record this episode at least once before, but uh, because I'm such a consummate professional, I forgot to click record. (laughs) So uh, uh, it it is what it is, folks. Uh, If I sound a little bit more tiddled than normal, I might sound like a mid-episode kind of Sam. That's because we are mid-episode, at least in one kind of reality right now. Uh, everyone, how are we doing? Have we all been surviving the apocalypse? Yeah, just kind of hanging in there, keeping head above water, staying busy, listening to music, and trying to stay as positive as possible. And listening to podcasts, actually. Yeah, lots of podcasts. Lots of podcasts. There, are so many, there are so many new ones. I mean, couldn't possibly name all of them. Most of them are called Paul or Nothing, Paul or Nothing, and Paul or Nothing. Oh, only, the good, only the good ones. <laughs> and, and, and the good ones. So, right off the bat, everyone, I want to take advantage of the fact that I've finally got some women on the podcast, like I say, you know, it's one big sausage fest here in the Beatle community. And I want to tackle some of the more important questions that only the other gender could ever do any justice. Great. <laughs> I'll break this next part down into, in, into three segments. Who was the cutest Beatle? Who was the most handsome Beatle? Mm. And who was the sexiest Beatle? Mm. <laughs> so then we've got an odd man out. Seriously. <laughs> and, and, and nothing and nothing. Who was Ringo? Yeah. And then who would the, who would you kill? <sighs> Wait, are we doing fuck Mary Kill now? Fuck, fuck Mary Kill the Beatles. Yes, let's do this. Fuck Mary Kill the Beatles. No, no, we shouldn't do that because two no, of them are we, dead. Yeah, we shouldn't, because then we gotta kill somebody. See, I'm quite kinky. I want to fuck Mary and kill the same one in a very specific order. Ooh, oh no. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, who would that be? Right, you can't you can't leave that dangling. <laughs> it's gotta be John. I know I it was John. Yes. <laughs> like I want John to treat me bad. I just do. Oh boy! <laughs> wow! I, I want to have a lost weekend with him, yeah. and then right. You, you know that's a year and a half, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> but, you know, look, look! All I'm saying is, I want to be in the bar when John punches a waiter. You know, so that's the kind of relationship I am. I am after with. So you want to be hairy? Yeah, basically, <laughs> and like every other Rolling Stone writer. I'm one lucrative book deal away, you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let me uh, narrow this question down further. Which beetle has the biggest wiener? Ringo. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I think we do know that it's that it's Ringo. Is this in tune in? <laughs> it will be in the future episode. It would yes. never, ever, ever be in tune in unless it was John. That is true. <laughs> that is true. Whether it is or isn't, it's going to be John. <sighs> now, the only one we know for the only one we have actual footage of. That I'm aware of is John, right? So it's it's hard yeah, to know, yeah, but our yeah. guess is our guess is Ringo. I mean, if it was a more sensitive video for other men in the world, it would be a flagging erection video. But you know, John was John; he probably had access to all sorts of stimuli. Is it big, Paul? Are you proud of me now? I'm sure. I'm sure the industry would be. Didn't he show a sex tape at Apple? He, he played he a sex tape. Yes, an audio. <clears throat> I don't love any of my friends that much. 
No, I don't think anybody loved him that much either, actually. Yeah, I don't think anybody no. needed to hear that. John, are you Jesus or are you a, a porn star? Which is it? Come on. What are you talking about? Jesus was a total smoke show. Okay, but, but, but back to your other question, because, you know, as we said the first time around, I think that this is not a sexist question in that women shouldn't be asked who the hottest beetle is. I think that it should be asked for everyone, men too, right? So I, I think that there's no issue with talking about, well, what, what should we call it? Most, um, which, which beetle are we most thirsty for? Or for me, they have, uh, they all have highs and lows. You know, yeah. I, I, I guess being a being, being a man, being a man myself, there could, <laughs> be, there could be an attraction to another man, but it doesn't necessarily have to be consciously sexual or kind of romantic. But there could definitely be an underlying. Yeah. Sure, there, I mean the same way that you, if you're attracted to women, you some women you find more visually exciting, and some you just want to plow. I mean, there's a difference, you know. I, I feel that way about the Beatles too, like. I th- first of all, I think they're all attractive, good-looking guys. I think yeah. we all can they're all agree on that. They're all mm-hmm. handsome. They're all really mm-hmm. good. But for example, if you if you're just talking about like like who I would rank as the handsomest, if like could possibly be George in in like the Beatlemania days. Like it's just his features are just cut from stone. You know, like he just has a a hell of a face. You know, but I'm not sexually attracted to him. <laughs> Because that's just me personally, because I'm not into that twink look. Um, <laughs> it's, I'm not, that's not, I'm not being insulting. It's just that's, I, I just don't like that spindly kind of, so some people are really into that, like, like bony and hairless. <laughs> Harrison looked in the early 70s, living in the material world, Harrison, that's definitely more me. For sure. No, my, mine would be a few years before that, the, the man, bun, man, man bun Harrison looking all arrogant and, I don't know, suave. That, that's a good look. That's better than the, the big, big, big hair. That starts in like 69, right? Yeah, that's yeah. around 69. Yeah, he's got the, there's this photo of him with the shades, walking with flowers and the man bun. And that's pretty, that's to me, that's top, top Harrison. After that comes uh, help Harrison. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. Okay, big question. Paul McCartney's Let It Be beard. How do we feel? Oh God! Oh, oh yes. It. Yeah, McBeardy. Mc, yeah, yeah. We're we're total thumbs up. Yeah. I mean, Paul's Top pretty choice. much hot all all the time, sort of across the board. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul, you know, and and we kind of like. I mean, I personally have a mad crush on him with mustaches. For some odd reason, he's the only man in the world that I love with a mustache. But, you know, he, he can work a mustache. He can work a mustache. He looks arrogant and, I don't know, vaguely 18th century or something. I don't know. He just looks very cool. Yes. And I love how you guys flagged the triumphant victory mustache as, like, something that he dons when he's going through some, you know, Completely fertile, creative it's, periods. It's like a, yeah, reckless, it's a reckless genius look. Yeah. It's eccentric, you know, especially the late late 70s one. But the, the one in Pepper, I mean, when he's got that huge head of hair and mm. mustache, it's, it's a good look. Yeah. Yeah. But, but to answer your original question, Sam, I don't find any, any of the Beatles cute. <laughs> I think they're all pretty much assholes. 
Uh, yeah, yeah. If yeah. you take personality into account, yeah, they, they, they can all be dicks, but um, but they are sexy. I think that Ringo personally borders on cute and sexy in early 60s. Like, you know, yeah, he, he's got a prettiness to him that has gone undiscussed, I think. Yeah, unnoticed. Well, Ringo's also pretty fucking hot, though. And, and like, Hamburg Rim, Ringo, forget about it. Like, like in Hamburg, I think that's when I find the Beatles sort of maybe the cutest because they still look like little boys. Boys, yeah. Not to sound yeah. gross. But, <laughs> but, but seriously, but cute is kind of like how you describe, like, a teenager or something. Like, they're, they're, the three of them look, still look soft to me in Hamburg. But well, which is why Paul, Paul probably, Paul hated the word cute. And you can understand why. I mean, he's like, right. I'm, I'm like, a, 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 the, one of the biggest rock stars in the world. Stop calling me cute, please. Well, like, I mean, in terms of Ringo, he was the oldest member of the band. He was the one that they were all modeling themselves after at a very early point. Yeah. You know, like, they were all drinking beer. Ringo has rum and coke. They're all suddenly having rum and coke. They're all acting a bit like the slightly mature Ringo. So I guess he wasn't as concerned with being as... He, know, he's sexy, as, too. In the same way as the, the, the other guys are. But, but uh, a Hamburg Ringo looks... It, yes, like I, I think they often refer, like Paul refers to him as like he he was a grown up, you know. Yeah, but I think yeah. It's not, he had a car. It, I think it's yeah. not just like the car and the facial hair. It's I also think he has a worldliness about him, in in like a wisdom. Well, yeah, which he always had. You know, I think that no matter what, Ringo always had this maturity. Right. Not. I mean, not for nothing. But he he like basically lived in a sanitarium, right? Right. Oh. That, that makes someone grow up. Yeah. It's hard. He, yeah. You know, he's probably the hardest of all of them. He almost died several times. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's he's not like a soft. I mean, he, you know, like he's sentimental and all that sort of stuff, but he's he's the hardest of all four of them at that point. Can we just give a shout out to Ringo's school friends who came and read him his schoolwork while he was ill in hospital? Like, those are possibly the some of the coolest people of all time that go uncredited in the Beatles story because you know I just find stuff like that incredibly cute I'm yes his that story is cute. sweet that is cute his story is is amazing you want to talk about like you know people talk about Ringo like oh he's so lucky like because he got in the Beatles and he's lucky like sort of implying that he didn't earn it or something mm-hmm. but like yeah you know he's lucky in the in the way that like I th- I think he genuinely appreciates that like he's had multiple brushes with death, and he's right. still and he's still looking amazing. That's the amazing thing he is did. Ringo looks incredible. He looks so healthy. The broccoli's working. Look, like a man in his eighties. It's mental. Like it's pretty much him, Helen Mirren, and Halle Berry, but they're just ageless. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, like a lot of that is attitude and broccoli, apparently. John is always gorgeous. I mean, I, I personally love John. Looks beautiful, and I think like sixty four. I agree. I agree. Actually, he looks like he thinks he's good looking. Oh yeah, John. John knows he's hot for sure. For sure. Like you know what? And there are accounts of that that you know that John likes to look good. But yeah, my, yeah. oh for sure. My, my personal favorite period is uh, for John is uh, sixty seven because I love the eccentricity of his little mustache as opposed oh. to Paul's, which was debonair, you know, his was just eccentric. And I love that John that's Adorable. like not taking himself too seriously is, is like cool with being a weirdo. And then he, he shaves it for 
uh, all you need is love. And he looks spectacular there. Like just, I think the most beautiful. Another one I want to give a quick shout out. 68 Mutton Chop Lennon at the end of the Yellow Werewolf. Werewolf, John, yes. Werewolf. Where where did that go? It existed for about a month and then was just, it went. It was just gone. It didn't, it, it didn't look great. Yeah, it, it it all grew out in in India. Yeah, yeah. I, I think mean, he was sporting that look when they went to India, and then it turned into a massive beard, and then he cut it off when he got home. I'm, yeah, I'm not in the mutton chops. I mean, that's just me. I, oh, Paul's. I am Paul's. I am Paul in India. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do like those too. Actually, there's a charm about them. <laughs> they are cute. They are very cute in India. All the photos of India are fucking great, though. Yeah, they yeah. all look really good. Actually, and George looks really good there too. No, they do look like those hot guys you bump into on holiday. You know what I mean? Like, oh, summer, summer romance kind of thing. <laughs> no, oh, if you're lucky, yeah. <laughs> I don't know where you're going on holiday, Sam. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Text us later. He, he swore to me he didn't have a girlfriend. He liked it. Yeah. <laughs> Something I've always, I've always noticed, and we did touch on this earlier, but I, I want to bring it back up again because I thought it was quite an interesting conversation. Despite Linda being able to photograph things incredibly well and with great composition and framing and make things look very interesting, no one ever seemed to shoot her in the same way. And she kind of came off as a bit frumpier or goofier than she ever meant to be. Was this because that was her as an artist or because she was never going for the the sex symbol Debbie Harry status within the band, you know? Yeah, I think that um, I have a bunch of friends who are photographers and they are all, all of them, horrible in front of the camera, which is shocking. But it, it it's like they don't like being in front. They are photographers for a reason. They like yeah. to look at the world, you know, and um, I think that that she just isn't comfortable. You know, I kind of wish that there were some spectacular. I mean, there are despite her sort of awkwardness, I think that there are some good shots of her, but I wish there were more. I wish that she had, because I do think when you see her on film, she's so cute and sexy. Yeah. That doesn't always translate to the photos of her. Um, So that's the first part of it. I think she just isn't good in front of a camera. And unfortunately she was behind it so much that she maybe didn't have the time to relax in front of a camera. But I think the second point to your point, I think it was a choice it's not her she i think she's naturally incredibly sexy probably and doesn't no, feel she could have been she could have been a sex symbol well, she, yeah she could have been but i think in, like people who knew her say she was and i don't think she chose yeah to portray that you know and especially given their lifestyle i mean she's she's ball's partner you know she's just, the only one she needs to be sexy for really is him i think yeah and, you know that's not even it's interesting even the two of them don't aren't especially coupley on a lot of their their photos for the albums and things like that you know behind the scenes they are but um i think that's a choice oh yeah like they're not putting their pictures of them maybe maybe on the cover. yes exactly okay. like they're separate in the band you know that they don't sort of lean yes. heavily yes that. no he she, she is treated like a band member for sure yeah which is cool not paul's wife yeah yes which she is she is totally and Yoko was never portrayed in that way either, which is interesting as well. There was never a kind of Beatle doll, or at least a post-Beatle doll in that sense, which is quite unique, really. I mean, you'd think that with publicists, the way they are, they probably would have liked to have 
oh, let's, let's get a bit of cleavage on Linda for the band on the run cover. Nope, oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm sure they were dying to dress Paul and Linda properly. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you see you see that in the James Paul McCartney special, actually, actually that occasionally they do look better because clearly hair and yeah. makeup people have <laughs> caught them and, like, strapped them down and, like, cut their hair and stuff. When Linda's photographing Paul, they, they are so primed for that setup. You're right, yeah. It's very funny. Oh, when uh, when <laughs> when Linda's in the uh, the sexy secretary look, or whatever. Oh yeah, oh, yeah, that's great. Oh, that's so hot. I wish they did yeah. that. Not necessarily the sec- they could have switched roles even, but um, they look good there. Yeah, me fancying Linda is definitely going to be a theme of this episode. If I'm honest, I've mentioned it several. Times. What do you think, Sam? Oh, I mean, she's the hottest Beetle wife for you. Yeah, hundred percent easily. I mean, when I saw Give My Regards to Broad Street and I saw Barbara back for the first time, I was like, eh, whatever. Oh, um, God. I love, yeah, I think oh, she's oh. hot stuff. She's gorgeous. Yeah, she's like hot in that 80s way, if you know what I mean. Girl, um, she's just she's just straight hot. Barbara yeah. and... She's beautiful still. Didn't do nothing for me. I'm like, wow. What about Maureen? Uh, Maureen and Barbara to me are the... Maureen is like the most crushable. <laughs> yeah. yeah me like i mean the fact that goes thanks bowl it, it, it's it's impossible not to be in love with her just from those two words alone you know and she's uh, gorgeous and she's got the best fashion sense to me like she's just the most attractive to me yeah i don't have that same i like maureen i don't have that same draw to her uh stylistically fashion wise i i think Patty uh, in the 60s was unbelievable. Like, bar none, P- P- Patty was crazy in terms of style and how good she looked. And I, I don't love personally her, you know, 70s and beyond looks as much, but that, I mean, she was unbelievable then to me. Fashion Mo's like, like late 60s, early 70s look for Mo was my favorite period for Maureen. Yeah, yeah. Like, where she wore the tight jeans a lot and the eyeliner and she yes. had the dark hair with the bangs. Yes. Like, yeah, that's my favorite Mo period. <laughs> yeah, that one doesn't do much for me, but um, I just I know that taste. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I know that we all uh, find Yoko stylish. You know, she's yeah, her style game is pretty on point. Yeah, I think she she understands creating an image. You know, like she's she's both stylish, but I think she understands too. You know how to pair with Very John. Modern. It's very modern, her grasp of it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I, my, it's, yeah. I liked her 60s looks, you know, when she stuck with, like, black and white. Like, she, she had a way of keeping it simple that made everything kind of streamlined that worked right. really well. Especially with, the, like, the, the hair, the giant hair. Yes. It was She understood that was a look that made her famous, yeah. you know, and it fit well with the, the clothes that she wore to complement it. And she can do mini skirts really, really well. Yep, and like the wedding photos with her with the mini skirt and the floppy hat oh, yeah. and the long hair, like oh yeah, on point. Yeah, that was good. More so than any of the Beatles, John and Yoko had a had an identifiable silhouette, which is really powerful. Yeah, like no matter what design you use, you can just use the um, you mentioned earlier the big triangle hair and the big yeah. beard and the big head. Bam, that's John and Yoko. Yeah. It, yep. it add the circular glasses, maybe they're a Halloween costume. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. they are brilliant at every 
element of creating a brand. I mean, and, and I don't even know if they're doing that. I don't think they're doing this necessarily purposefully. They just understand that, you know, that. They do it intuitively. I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that these kinds of um, looks and sound bites transfer really, really quickly, you know, and people get them. And, and I wish Paul and Linda had a similarly recognizable look, <laughs> the twin mullets perhaps, <laughs> but yeah. but they don't, you know, there, there's not quite such an iconic image of them. No, but, I, but one thing I do like about them is that they are always in sync. And I find that very charming about them. Like throughout that is absolutely their entire yes. marriage together. They, they're that always true. on the same page. And I don't think yep. it's forced at all. I think it's just a byproduct of them living together and being married and being together all the time. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, I, one of my favorite photo shoots from them is is like 73, maybe. There's some kind of Disney thing that it's so cute. Oh, yeah. You know, oh, where yeah. Linda's got little side braids and, and they've got the matching like fresh mullets and they look really <laughs> yeah, it's adorable, adorable there. Oh, one of my favorite little moments is there's a picture of Paul like helping Linda apply her stage glitter. Like oh, to yeah. her face when they were very glammy in '72. Yeah. yeah, that was a. They were. They looked unbelievable in '72. Oh, the yeah. two of them. Yes, Ro- rocking bods, great, like ridiculous '70s glam clothes. I'd love to think that Linda would have worn the Sergeant Pepper top in bed one morning in the classic girlfriend way. Oh, you've thought of <laughs> oh, that. Yeah. I, somehow, I, I think that this is not the first time you've thought of that. No, definitely, <laughs> no, definitely not. I mean, if you look at the back of my copy of Sergeant Pepper, there's clearly some glue where I've taped Linda <laughs> over, over, over Paul's. <laughs> that would be like Paul having sex with himself if he's wearing... <laughs> No, but, no, but, no, but Linda, it turns out you're dead the whole time as well. Yeah. That's a different kink. Oh, my gosh. We have, we have uncovered a lot of stuff. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Can I just put in one – can I put in one plug, one good word for John in his May Pang period? He looked so good. Oh, yes. So good. Oh, they, they looked hot together too, actually. Maybe because he was actually sexual at that point in his life. I'm just throwing it out there. Oh yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, he he looks. They they have a lot of chemistry. They have a lot of sex too. It's in her book. Yeah, yeah. They look like they're having lots of hot sex. <laughs> Seriously, they do. hot sex is a lot funnier than having sex. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh. May is hot as shit too. She is. Yeah. Oh yes, she's adorable. And her fashion's on point too, actually. And I love her gorgeous hair. Yeah, I don't know about those gigantic glasses. Oh, I love them. I love Mays. You know what? I'm always thinking about the different eras of all these yeah. people, but but like May in the 70s looked fantastic. I love those giant glasses. Like it it is kind of anti-sex symbol too. Like she was super sexy, but then she had those giants, you know, kind of offset it. Yeah, she had a great like sort of languid kind yep. of mojo too, where she's just yep. like, oh, I'm here. And I'm draped over John. Exactly. And, yeah. My hair is just all over the place, but it looks good. Like her yeah. hair always looked good. Yeah, it's it's a lot better than Linda during the Rock Show movie, uh, where she's in this awkward black dress with weird black feathers on the shoulder pads, and she's jumping around awkwardly. It's uh, it's possibly her worst look in the entire canon. 
Sadly. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that either. I, I'm really not. That costume uh, wasn't good. Yeah, I'm. I, I'm pretty sure she loved it though. Yeah, I mean, she looks like she's having fun. Um, but I mean, is it as iconic as her waving that fan in the Good Night Tonight music video? No, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> that may only be iconic for you, Sam. Oh my god! But I love. I don't know about you, Sam. If if this is what you know floats your boat. Um, but I just I love barefoot Linda in like sundresses like that era. Is that? Oh, we're going to talk about wildlife shortly. <laughs> Don't you worry. Don't you worry. You know, you know. Speaking of albums, we're gonna we're gonna move on to slightly more pressing topics because I because I I don't want to keep you forever. You know what? Let, let's just get into some headier stuff though, because there was a lot of questions that I did want to ask you because your podcast is so illuminating and it does questions like I, I, so many shows don't question things or raise questions in the way that you guys do and it's so it's so fascinating for me i mean one of the tent poles of this is the fact that you you give paul mccartney such a fair shake overall i mean have you three always felt that paul was unfairly represented or was that something that you discovered in developing the show well i can jump in i i certainly always from the the time that i dug into the beatles at 12 or 13 and started reading books, you know, at that period, it was always interesting to me that I'd always think, but there's a different story here too. And I never read it. You know, it was like just the same story repeated, repeated, repeated. And it was shocking to me that it was like, we only ever were allowed to see things one way through one point of view. And, and it seemed really obvious what, that there was different ways to tell the story. So yeah, it's, it's always, there's always been a dissonance for me between the Paul that we know in culture. And, and I understand the fact that we only see part mm-hmm. of a, a, an artist, but we also see his or have experienced his art. And there was a total dissonance between um, what, how he was portrayed and then what we knew of him. And I think that when you, something that has happened while we've delved in is that you realize how little his perspective is actually given consideration. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, I think we all got into the Beatles at approximately the same age, like 12, 13. Um, And, and we definitely have, have not just come to reassess Paul as we were making a podcast, like it's, it's like right. the reason we, we got together and made the podcast is because we've had these views for forever. I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, I would say like the, maybe the first two years of my Beatles fandom as a child, I kind of just took everything at face value. Um, but then like, you know, as a teenager or whatever, just, just applying like some, critical thinking to the, the <laughs> yeah. you know the narratives that I was like well that doesn't make any sense and and also it doesn't <clears throat> it just I, I liked Paul's music always and I was constantly told that it was inferior and that it was bad and that you know grannies are something awful that you should disrespect or whatever I don't even know where that you know is coming yeah, I, I I agree with that. Like it was, it's almost a feeling of 
like being pushed down constantly, like you're wrong, your opinion is wrong. Mm. And I, I don't know, there's part of me that's just like, well, no, it's not. Exactly. Like, well, fuck that. I'm not going to yeah. believe that just because you told me to believe it. Like, that's your shitty opinion. Yeah. I mean, I've pretty much noticed it um, once I got into really studying like the post breakup timeline as a teenager. And especially once I started engaging with the fandom online. Um, yeah. And yeah, like I wanted to actually thank you, Phoebe, for bringing up the whole granny thing, because it's like that term now has been used to denigrate Paul and his foray into kind of older music. But it's like kind of weaponized against older women. Yeah. Like, do we not like older women? Are they bad? Is it bad right. to to create things that they might enjoy. So that's always been kind of a hot button for me. Like that's a term that I would be totally fine if it just died. Well, it's, it doesn't seem like it's going to, but, it, but the idea of things being weaponized against Paul is definitely, definitely still exists. And is something that is done that we see an inconsistency on how things are used, you know? Right. Like, and like it, what, like, I never even thought about that. Like, it is quite a problematic phrase, granny music. Oh, hugely. Yeah. Oh, my God. God. That was John's great turn of phrase that, you know, there's certainly other songs within the Beatles that could be called granny music from John. uh, Or you could call stuff drone-like from John. But Paul doesn't do that. You know, he he doesn't publicly state things he doesn't like. And so... Therefore, you know, nobody weaponizes his perspective about John, you know, but that's something John did, unfortunately. I mean, Crippled Inside or Oh Yoko, these are very gushy, silly love songs. And yet he doesn't get, oh, oh, no, it's just, it's John's raw passion. 90% of what John writes are love songs. What are we talking about? (laughs) Like, what? People talk about him like he's... (laughs) I don't know. Like he's the Beatles don't do waltzes unless I'm writing baby number. <laughs> exactly. That's ridiculous. And I don't know. Or I dig a pony. Yeah. <laughs> Norwegian wood. <laughs> I mean they write they write rock music. And from my perspective, again, I think it's also important for us because we're younger, not like we're eighteen years old, but I mean we because we're not part of that. baby boomer generation we just don't have a lot of that baggage of like Mm. you know like i was um i was thinking about disco the other day and you know disco's amazing there's no reason why it was hated on so much in the 70s by the rolling stone type dudes except you know racism homophobia and misogyny like that's literally it. yeah oh the amount of times i've tried to get my friends to watch saturday night fever and just sit down and watch it and love it. It's like, guys, no, 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 no. Seriously, this is up there with like singing in the rain and Citizen Kane. This is this is one of the best things ever made. Come on, yeah. But but night night on Disco Mountain. Get out of here. But it, a disco music is awesome, and it wasn't until you know it's like when fucking you know white college boys started doing it. Then it, in in the nineties, it's like now it's trance. There's an article that we circulated um, that talks about mentrification, which is when men appropriate something that it all of a sudden, and, and Beatles falls under this. It, but it's like, you know, again, to the trance, it's like trance is 
intellectual yeah. so-called it's like smart disco basically but it's not as good yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. What I mean? well well i, <laughs> I happen to love trance too but well, I um, do too. it might be as good but it's but it's not superior is my point like there's no right 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 that's the thing though is anything that is the target if the target is women traditionally it's shit it, on it's shit on right because obviously we can't have um you know our taste is not <laughs> as sophisticated <laughs> Which is kind of something that I feel like um, in the, 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 the jean jackets that we spoke of, that's kind of the attitude, like, let us tell you what's cool, you know? What I don't like about that rock music critic culture is that they kind of came along and made it no longer okay to just enjoy things as well. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, you can't just enjoy stuff. That's not okay. We have to dictate to you what's good and bad. Uh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm very sorry to interrupt and mansplain this moment. I was listening to the Word podcast recently, these two old rock critics. They are definitely jeans, jackets, blokes, right? And they were talking about how they noticed from their own experience, women liking music is about genuinely enjoying the craft and the final output, whereas men will typically, before they declare whether they like something or not, will see if other men in their social circle like the same thing mm. before they declare their own love for something. And it's, That's it's interesting. A thing. It's a, oh, I know this bit of trivia about uh, long, long, long that you don't know. I am now superior. Yeah. It's competitive in that way. It really is. Well, we do love trivia. I mean, that that, that does that seem is to be that yeah. it is. <laughs> but uh, that's actually an interesting insight. But actually, that makes women's enjoyment more pure. Like they're positioning us as being a little bit more honest. Um, I I don't know if they're, you know, if yeah. this is a sociological thing or not. It does sound like it, but I, you know, I don't know that that's gendered so much. But I know I know just like just speaking from my own perspective, like as an artist, like I never. I judge everything on just what the art is doing. I don't, it would never occur to me to give a shit about somebody else's assessment. Like if you right. have something interesting to point out, then I would be interested in that, you know, <laughs> but like, if you're like, yeah. it's bad, meh, meh, meh. I'm like, okay, well, you don't like it. I will now form my opinion. Mm -hmm. well, I, mean, I don't know how any of it is fair because it's been pretty well documented that at the start of their careers, the Beatles were seen as a band whose fandom was represented mostly by young girls. So when did the shift change? Was it when all the young men that were in the minority grew up and stayed with the band? Or was it a second wave thing that kind of made it this middle-aged white man fandom? No, it's just that men that men own that space. They own that discourse. So it, women were never a part of it. They, they Even though they, it was made on the backs, like their popularity was created on the backs of women, that's irrelevant because the men dominate the discourse and they're not about to let anybody into that. Right. Well, and I think there was a lot of male fans right from the start too, even though there was a huge female fan base. That, There's lots of too. footage of, of men screaming as well. So that, you know, certainly there were a lot of men, but you know, the, the, the traditional rock and roll magazines as we know it today, or as we knew it in the eighties and nineties, um, I think that started mid 60s but you know you you look at who was writing the articles about them it was mostly men and then i guess there were some fanzines and so there was kind of like this male reporter some fanzines and then they the the early versions of right prod eddie or whatever started in 66 you know but that's a ghetto i mean that's that's what i'm saying it's like the the, the women are forced to write for teen magazines right mm. yes 
to children. Yeah. Right. And the Beatles actually commented on that. They said that they found when they talked to women. That's true. They said when they talked to women, they, you know, women asked intelligent questions about the music. And then they were spoken to in magazines like, you know, who's cute, who's dating who, you know. Not that that's not part of the discussion. No, but but it's true. But he also said that sometimes John and Paul, I think, commented on sometimes the journalism in like the fan magazines is actually better than the the ones in the more reputable magazines. Right, right. Well, like how how much of an impact does the male centric language of the Beatles and its lyrics have on its audience? You know, it's I love her. She loves you. No, I mean, if you're asking if women and men process music differently or art differently, I, I think no. I think I think all human beings, when they experience a piece of art, they identify with the emotions and the. Yeah. If you're watching a movie, you identify with the protagonist. You know, that's yeah. how 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 it works. <laughs> like our generation is also a lot more cynical about celebrity culture. So, like, I never self inserted like myself into a, like a fantasy about a celebrity, even ones that I found really appealing. Yeah. Well, and I also just, I think the Beatles fandom has always been really diverse. I, you know, like, I think that was a lot of early marketing stuff and the reaction of the media. They were like, well, there are a lot of women here screaming, so it must all be screaming girls. But yeah, there are plenty of, there's plenty of footage of guys in the audience screaming their heads off too. Like they invented like a stadium concert where you scream. The technology just didn't keep up, you know, and project oh, them and loud enough. I but screamed yeah. as well. I definitely screamed as well when Paul came on stage and Amen. I was definitely trying I was trying to make myself faint so I appeared. <laughs> <laughs> well, well and, and, and yeah, the, where do they take those girls? That's that, that that's what I wanna know. I understand Beatlemania. I mean there you know, I think there's also a thing where women maybe also a, of a earlier generation, um we're very sort of mysterious to men, you know. It's like men, for, I don't know, for some reason have. I, oh, you still again, are. You still are. Yeah, <laughs> because because whatever it's a it's a male centered system that we live in, right? Mm. And so, if you live in if you live in a world where you're never required to see from a woman's point of view ever about anything, then they're going to be fucking mysterious to you, right? You you've never even given them any thought to being in their shoes. So, I think part of it was seeing all these women young women going crazy and screaming and you know jizzing in the fucking seas men were like perplexed they were like what is beatlemania like how many fucking think pieces were there about like what is beatlemania it's like what are you confused about this this band fucking rocks and they're hot as shit and they're like and they're it's true it's true it seems to yeah it seems to have shocked men that you know that women could be this wild and desirous you know it's like look at the beatles it's pretty it's pretty simple <laughs> it's pretty obvious yeah the beatles don't particularly do it for me but i would be a liar if i said that if tom hardy or idris elba came around to my house and said right sam you're coming back with me, that I would not agree immediately. Right, but, like, if, but if like four hot women made the greatest music you've ever heard that was innovative, that had, like seemed to come from another planet, and then they went on stage in like tight clothes, and they fucking sang into each other's faces, like guys would fucking spooge. And no one would, <laughs> no one would be wondering like, oh, I wonder why they have this effect on men. Like, 
Yeah. Right, right. It would be like they're hot women. They're incredibly, yeah. And they're at the top of their game and they're yeah. amazing and the music is hot. Well, I think that gets missed a lot is that women understand music too. And a lot of young girls like music. And so they're always thinking of like either screaming girls or groupies, you know, and they're not thinking about the fact that women actually process music and enjoy it. And there are actually women who are trained in music and appreciate what they're doing. Like I was always really attracted to their modulations and their chord changes because they're insane. Have you ever tried to just learn a Beatles song on guitar? It's fucking hard. Because their chords are just crazy and they do these amazing innovative chord switches. So I noticed that like the music sounded really innovative and they had an edge to themselves. You know, they were really, really inventive and it just was like that plus how charming and hot they are and how clever they were. Like they were super smart, all four of them you know, like talking back to the, these dumbass questions they got about their hair all the time, you know, like that's super attractive. It's like a whole package in one band. Right. And then they're on top of that, they're hot. But, but yeah, that, <laughs> like, the idea that like, oh, well, if you're attracted to them, clearly you're not into the music is like, is so ridiculous. Like if that, yeah. if that was applied to men at any time, it's like, well, you, you would fuck that woman. So therefore you have no opinion on anything. It's like men would be disqualified on every topic in the world. Right. Oh, yeah, and, and, and I think yeah. that brings us back to the issue of cute again, is that, you know, that, that just simplifies it to women find them cute. And that's why they're screaming versus all of the things that we just discussed, like the, the, the reason why women love the music, their energy, their sexuality, their, you know, the, the, their cleverness, all of this stuff. And it's just sort of watered down to being cute. And that's the same thing that happens to Paul. I think that everything you know, all of his genius and charisma, poor guy gets saddled with cute, you know? Yeah, yeah. Your... Right? And it has to be degrading. The fact that he has, like, a robust female fan base is used, is, like, weaponized against him. Like, it must, Absolutely. It must mean that he's not as good. Instead of, like, instead of looking into, like, what do these women see that we're, that for some reason we have a problem with or whatever it is, like, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, he's the one that has suffered the most at the hands of having a female fan base, because again, all of all of the the negativity is applied that is applied to women as fans is applied kind of to Paul. Well, they they clearly don't just think he's cute. They clearly clearly don't necessarily get music. They just think that he's hot. You know, I think that that kind of thing is used against him, as as Phoebe said, it's it's weaponized versus the fact that. And I think that's why what we're talking about is hopefully interesting to people is that we do see incredible things about him that we think has been missed, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I asked this the first, the first time we spoke, but one of the things you pointed out on your show was that something that maybe I'd noticed, but never been able to formalize into a, into a succinct brain fart. And it's the idea that all the language around Paul is, is more carefully selected than, than like a communist manifesto. Like all the words are so knowingly or unknowingly feminized to the point where Paul is always described as like, oh, he's being upset and John hurt him. And, and Paul is sad and depressed, whereas John is always like angry. John is, is domineering, whereas Paul is manipulative. Paul is bossy while John is a leader. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Paul is domineering too. I think that's a feminine coded word. But yeah. And Paul is sneaky. And yeah, it's interesting because a lot of the times Aloof. they do the same. 
they do a lot of the same activities or they'll do the same kinds of things and they are talked about in such different ways. I mean, I, I would encourage anyone who's reading books, even now, I, I, you know, I'm going to call out Lewison and Doggett specifically, like, you know, we're, we're delving into Doggett pretty deeply for our, the breakup series. And it's shocking if you look at the adjectives that describe Paul versus John, it, it, it just, yeah. it, all you have to do is focus on those to see the story. You know, it's like Paul is childish and it, it's ridiculous. He's talking about one guy who's taking heroin and not showing up. And he's like, you know, cool and decisive and a leader. And Paul is reactive and childish and, you know, emotional, emotional and, emotional <laughs> and can't, can't compartmentalize like John, like what, what are you talking about? And, but it's interesting how much, like if you strip away that editorializing, and you look at their behaviors, it tells a totally different story, but um, it's heavily coded in books. And, and Lewison, too, for all of his unbiased BS, it's heavily coded, too. We just encourage people to, to, to take notice. Right. And, and so w- one of the reasons why those types of words are, are, are problematic, it's not just because it's demeaning to Paul, but it's also misleading. Because, you know, pigeon, pigeonholing and stereotyping are mental shortcuts. Okay, right? Like, analysis is hard. Critical thinking is hard. And it's not just, it's not just like a smart people thing, right? Because smart, smarter people actually tend to be more guilty of confirmation bias. So it's not about being dumb versus being smart. But it's just about, like, when you code somebody as feminine and somebody as masculine it becomes sort of like a self-perpetuating thing like authors just start to assume things based on these fictional fucking roles that they've put Lennon and McCartney in right right and you even see things like you know you see artwork of the Beatles and Paul is smaller you know and he's not he's the tallest Beatle you know it's just like that there are certain things that are just attributed to them that aren't actually true you know, it's just from the fact that that I guess the fandom or writers have been more comfortable putting them in these different roles. And it is very misleading. It's interesting when we strip the language and we just look at the facts. You know, we, we had to do this a lot at how it's like, why did we ever think that? You know, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. There, there's a lot of lot of like rethinking the story based on, just on activities that it's like when you strip away everything, it, it it tells a different story. And and a lot of these codes are repeated. So and I would even add that on the flip side, John is often over masculinized in the discourse as well. So we miss out on things like John being hurt and John feeling as though he's being looked over or Paul's being insensitive towards him. Absolutely. You know, it's always fun as anger. Like it's, you know, the, the emotions that society has deemed are the only appropriate emotions men can have. Anger and wanting to feel dominant. Those are the only two things men are allowed to feel. Everything else is not okay. So, you know, it's unfair to John as well, and it misrepresents where he was at in the story, which is also extremely important to acknowledge. Yeah, I mean, that and that's an amazing point. And that's what we're trying to do is balance the two, uh, you know, take them out of their stereotypical roles. And actually, it it is not... Um, it's not fair to John who was out there actually talking about the fact that men cry. Like he was a good advocate for moving away from toxic masculinity 
And, you know, and I think that it doesn't, it's not respectful well, of what he was trying to do by robbing him of that, right? It's it's right. It's like, we should reward him for that. And he did not get, you know, it's like the, the culture doesn't reward that. It rewards the machismo stuff. But like, how many quotes do we have from John in the 70s saying, like, I was never a real tough guy you you realize that right and that's why we brought it up in our leadership episode it's not we're not trying to emasculate john we're just trying to say like get a grip everybody like please just be a little more fact-based and a little more realistic about this like i know that it's i know that it's a it's a very typical male fantasy like we you know men typically not all men but like men typically (laughs) like their male heroes to be virile and violent and macho and you know like Lewison is super hardcore into that version of John Lennon which is fine I'm not shaming him for it like I fucking have your fantasy I don't care but when you when when you start twisting history you know and like creating an entire false narrative based on those kind of projections it's problematic it's not fair right. <laughs> Right. I mean, and, and look, I mean, look it up. There's video of John saying men cry, you know, he, and he's really advocating for allowing men to have emotions and to, to, to not put men into these boxes. And I feel like a lot of writers put, try and put him back into that box, you know, dog being one of them. Yeah. And like John himself even goes back in, I think it's 1980 and says, you know, actually, I really was not a tough guy. That was all a protective front that I put up when I was a young man, you know, out of fear, like fear of being soft and showing my feminine side. You know, he's like, no, I wanted to be Oscar Wilde with the velvet. Right. Yes, I'm afraid of getting my ass kicked. Yeah. Like he deserves points for saying that. Like, yeah, we we respect him for that's that. That's what I'm saying. We, and and he took back the more violent wording and, you know, like he didn't want to be known for right. Lennon remembers. That that was not something that he was super proud of later, but that is what is used, you know, to represent him. It, it almost seems like it's almost like the easiest way to remember the dynamic if we have to view this prism of two men loving each other. The easiest way to view it is through one's weak, one's strong, one's masculine, one's feminine, and that's just how it gets passed through the ether. Like you say, analysis is hard, and that's an easy way to remember yes, it. Yes, for sure. I mean, I always have the attitude of like, you know, don't don't necessarily assume malice when incompetence will do. So I, I honestly think like a lot of this is is just yeah. kind of incompetence and laziness, as opposed to. It, like it's not a conspiracy you know what i mean it's just like absolutely yeah. that's a great point to make that we don't think it's a conspiracy we just think it's a story that a lot of people bought into that they ha- it maybe hasn't even occurred to them which is why it's good to have people you know like from diverse backgrounds looking at the dynamics and maybe seeing something new you know because it, it's not obvious to us that this was the only way to tell the story that's right and like talia said you need peer review and and there it just doesn't exist in like beetle dumb or whatever it's just it's an echo chamber and like you need some outside criticism or you're not going to get any better and it's weight and it's it's like it like we should be way past that (laughs) you know it's like it's so overdue 
Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the whole reason we wanted to do this podcast was to bring some diverse thought into the fandom. And we hope that others follow suit. We really do. Since we're going to talk about Paul and everything he did after the Beatles, I guess I should ask an important baseline question. And I'll go one by one. Phoebe, what is your favorite Beatles album cover and why? That's a great question, Sam, um, that I haven't really put uh, too much thought into. I I like Rubber Soul and Revolver and Sgt. Pepper. Those are probably the top ones. Mid-60s. Yeah, those I, all three of those are super um, interesting and iconic, and I, and I enjoy looking at them all the time. Talia, same question. Favorite Beatles album cover? Sgt. Pepper. Just because I love the uh, kind of the innovativeness of it. I love how much creativity went into it. And I like how collaborative it was between the guys. And they just they just look amazing. And it's just kind of a really big eye catcher. It's a shame that saying you like the Sgt. Pepper album cover is about as cool as saying Sgt. Pepper is your favorite Beatles album as well. Uh, it's one of those things that's so good that everyone seems to shit on it nowadays. Well, yeah. Well, Sgt. Pepper is my favorite Beatles album. I can say that. Yeah, same here. I don't think I could go that far. But before I reveal my favorite Beatles album, Diana, I want to hear yours, please. Well, I'm not going to go for this, but I do love the White Album. I actually love the fact that it's <laughs> blank and that, you know, you can kind of you don't project anything into it. Uh, but but if I had to choose one, it would it would be Sgt. Pepper, just because I, I feel like that's an album when you engage with Sgt. Pepper, you're like going into a world, I think. Mm-hmm. And that album to me is kind of like that. You're you're opening a storybook and, you know, that's what it represents to me. A different world. It's got to be a revolver for me, I'm afraid. Like, I still get lost and find new stuff in that every day. And it's not like Pepper, where it's like, oh, if, if you go online, there's 10 graphs that show you who's who in this photo mm-hmm. in Revolver. It's still a little bit ambiguous, a little bit mysterious. You go, oh, who's that guy? Is that is that Klaus? Is that Paul? Is that is that John? Who is that? I always wonder if it's symbolic, too, that, you know, Klaus, Paul's turned away. John's looking at Paul. You know, George, you see the actual, like, did he actually think, are they, are they yeah. symbolic? Yeah, like, is he putting deliberate? Is he just encoding stuff subconsciously or is he actually making a statement? Yes. Yeah, that is interesting. I've always noticed that Paul's looking away and John is looking over at him with that little smile on his face. I'm like, what does that mean? Well, I mean, that, that that's pretty symbolic. I just like the way that George looked me in the eye. yes yes klaus we know you love george you know actually i have that revolver book Uh, it's like a graphic novel that klaus made about the story of doing that album cover and he said the eyes come from the fact that he just couldn't get george's eyes right just drawing them and so he cut them out of a magazine Wow. And there's like a whole story about how the wind blew into his room that he was working on the collage and the project and wow. like blew the eyes out the window and he ran down like the stairwell to the street to get the eyes back. Oh god. <laughs> Cuz he was like I can't just go get another magazine, you know, it's 1965 or 1966 and like you got that magazine, that's my magazine. Like <laughs> you can't go get another one. And you can't print pictures out. Yeah. How goth. I threw out the window. I don't know why he's Werner Herzog in this impression. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a documentary where I see the heart of darkness in the people. <laughs> I would love 
totally watch that. Yeah. That would be my favorite movie. I want Paul McCartney to be in The Mandalorian season two. <laughs> I do too. Right. With all that said, I think it's high time we began our little virtual gallery exhibit, shall we say, of <laughs> McCartney album artwork. I'm not sure how far we're going to get. This may end up simply being a part one or a, a first recording, depending on how many digressions we have from this point onwards as well. I've made an effort not to go too overboard with my notes today, at least by my own standards. But fortunately, I think all of us have brought vinyl albums in front of us here today. So at least we can have the pieces to hand if we begin to flounder. Let's give it the old good college try, eh, everyone? Uh, we're going to begin, as you may have guessed, with McCartney's self-titled album from 1970, a.k.a. Sentimental Jamboree Yay! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> Let's do it. First things first, Diana, what are your thoughts on McCartney's debut album, The Music, Not The Art? Ah, The Music. Um, love it. Love it. Um, think it's experimental. I think that his music home love, what is it, music, family? Home love. family love. Home family love that defines it um, is uh, a great way to describe it. It's just kind of... Um, like the perfect album to put on on a weekend and uh, you know it's there's something incredibly charming there's you know grand songs on it I love the sound of it the warmth I like the diversity I personally love Paul's instrumentals so you know and I love his little musical links and the experimentation of that so I have um you know sometimes I I hear that the the album isn't finished or 
I think it is. This is the statement he wanted to make at this point. You know, it, it is a statement and I love it for what it is. I don't agree with that, though. I think the unfinished angle isn't completely unwarranted. I think there is an element of, I want to get this out just now. Uh, I don't have the time to perhaps necessarily redo any of these. I like them as they are enough. Well, just to counter that, I think that he, you know, he said that there was a number of pieces that he thought about doing in a different way, more produced. But I think that he was charmed by the sound of some of these. And yeah, there, there was sort of a desire to get out there and make a statement in the world. Yes, I agree with you that that was probably driving it. But, but also, I, I do think that he had lived through Let It Be and <clears throat> maybe just wanted to put out a, a version that they were talking about originally, you know? Yeah, I, mean, I do agree that to put on this album and listen to it in order is such an incredibly fun experience. And since I'm more of a fan of the album as a whole than as the individual smaller pieces, yeah. when I did it, it is the whole album. And so songs like Man We Was Lonely or Ooh You are still really fresh and exciting to me. Yeah. Yeah. So the cover itself. Set against a black background, the front cover of McCartney consists of this bowl of cherries and red liquid placed on this kind of cream-coloured wall, and the, the cherries have been knocked out of the bowl, the, the fruit's been tipped out. Quite a strange, evocative image. And then on the back cover, we have a photo taken by Linda in Scotland, showing her husband with little baby Mary tucked inside a fur-lined leather jacket. And inside it, in the gatefold, we have this cornucopia of intimate McCartney photo book snapshots. So, Diana, is Paul's visual artistic statement as exciting as, say, the heights of Maybe I'm Amazed? I think it is. I think it is. I And I happen to love the bowl of cherries on, on the front cover. I think it's really interesting that Paul is making an artistic statement. Like, you know, this isn't... I've heard a lot of arguments that the back cover should have been the front, but I actually think it's a much bolder artistic move to put the cherries, you know, as like a symbolic image on the front of the album. I think it's super iconic. I think, you know, Life is Just a Bowl of Cherries is a, is a song from the 30s that obviously Paul's going to know, you know. And so I think that apparently what happened was that they were on vacation and they borrowed the cherries. I, I don't know where they were, Jamaica or something like that. And then they borrowed the cherries and he and Linda, it was fairly spontaneous, but it's very conceptual, mm -hmm. you know, the, yeah. this idea, this idea that, you know, I think that it would have, I was thinking about if he would have just put the bowl of cherries and they would have done the same photo like that, just, <laughs> it would have been a bit self-congratulatory, you know, like, mom, my life is just a bowl of cherries, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and it's, I think that he is making, whether he meant to or not, he's making a real artistic statement about where he's at <laughs> in his life, that somehow life is a, is a bowl of cherries, but they're out of his you know, the, the cherries have fallen out of his bowl. His life is kind of a mess. And, you know, I think that that sort of saying that I, I think at one point his life was a perfect bowl of cherries. And right now it's messy, you know. It's but like I, I fragmented, like things are going to get better. And I have this hope. But yeah, like right now my life is kind of fractionated. Yeah, it's it's messy that that um, things are not like in some ways it's a little bit negative. And I think that, 
even though the album the album runs with a, a few different themes, but there is this, this theme of, I think, family and home and love, but there is loneliness and a little bit of isolation too. And to me, that's what the, the album conveys on the front. However, because it's Paul, it's not going to be just negative. You flip it over and it's like, oh, well, you know what? He is happy. You know, there's like a, such a gorgeous photo of him that's reassuring that, you know, maybe his once perfect life as a beetle is destroyed, but there is something else good going on. You know, that's that's how I take it. Honestly, you've completely sold me on it. I was going to be quite uh, non plucked on it up, up, up at all this point, but yeah, <laughs> I really quite like it now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm quite impressed at how low key and understated and modest McCartney's debut album that is supposedly meant to be rivaling Let It Be in the charts really is. It's, it's also quite interesting how he didn't go for something that maybe contrasted the cover of Let It Be, doing something a little brighter, like it is very dark, you know. Yeah, I think that's that's an amazing point that seems to be lost constantly is that, you know, this is a really low, he did not put his face on it. You know, you do not see a massive push from Paul to make this into a massive yeah. hit. He didn't put his face on it. He didn't release a single. He didn't do press. I mean, I think he was desperate just to, to make a statement in the world, like, and against the other Beatles at this point, and, and to, like, to emancipate sort of as, a, as an artist. But I don't think he cared. I, I'm sure he cared, because Paul always cares about chart success and all that kind of thing. So I'm sure, sure he cared that it sold. But I don't think that that was his driving objective. I just think he wanted to make an artistic, emancipated statement in the world. Of course, he's married to Linda McCartney, so... Her photography is—it's going to be instantly incorpor- incorporated into all of these releases, and I'm really glad it was right from the beginning. It does fit that theme of family and home, and how important all of that is to him. It's a homemade album with a homemade family photo album inside of it. Like you mentioned, there is a bit of a meme that the rear cover should have been the front. It's probably one of well, we're going to see it today. Many. Paul McCartney albums where the rear of the album might be a little bit more interesting to some people than the front. But I do enjoy that Paul takes the time to showcase Linda as an artist in her own craft yeah. on these albums. Mm-hmm. Yogi wants to be an artist and a songwriter. John pushes that. Linda's a great photographer. Paul showcases that. It's great. And he does in the self-interview too. I mean, he, you know, he constantly promotes her as a great photographer and somehow that was lost. Maybe they needed to up up their game in terms of promoting that because certainly John and Yoko did. But it's unfortunate that that got lost. But you're right. In, in the photos of it, yeah. I mean, he he always shines a light on her by letting her be. Not letting her. I mean, I'm sure she wanted to, and that was part of the collaboration. <laughs> but but by partnering with her and allowing himself to be the subject, you know, of her art. Yeah, like um, the fact that everyone's got a camera in their phone these days means that we're probably more than likely going to have less of a respect for Linda's craft here because photography is just an oft maligned art form anyway. Like, oh, you just point the camera and you and you and you click the photo, but there is there is such a a meticulous nature to what she does. Like, we're going to see this with many of these album covers that involve her photography. There are dozens of alternate takes that she does, and it's about her ability to select the very best of her work and promote that as the final image. That is one of her real skills, especially in things like McCartney 2 or Pipes of Peace. Like her mm-hmm. ability to 
great image. It's, it's rather unparalleled, really. Like you see that in the Sgt. Pepper uh, album release and stuff like that as well. She knows what a good image looks like. You, you know, Paul can trust that to her. And, right. He says yeah. that too, you know. He said in an interview that he was, um, you know, when she was taking photos of him at first, that she was that he was very self-conscious you know and he was like oh man these are gonna look bad but he found that they always she always captured him looking great so he came to trust her and what she would take of him which is you know i think she saw him in such a, a beautiful way and that's how she captured him and, and sometimes looking ridiculous and fun but they have that kind of quirky sense of humor between the two of them and there's an intimacy but- in them also Ab- yes exactly yes. an openness a, l- a lack of like he's Paul can be very, uh, I think, difficult probably to photograph because he's yeah. aware of himself at all times, mm-hmm. you know, and he's a little more relaxed with her. But yeah, to the to the gatefolds, I mean, that's kind of your entering in. That's the home family love. Like, yeah. that's where you enter into their world. And I, I love I love the fact that the dog is super prominent in yes. that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and there's a kitty. Kitty cat. <laughs> the animals are in there. It's yes. so cute. <laughs> Going back to the um, the bisection of language between Lennon and McCartney we were talking about earlier. Like if Lennon, well, I mean, he does to some degree in a lot of his albums, but if Lennon were to release this exact series of photos in an, in a gatefold, for him it would be revealing and this great uh, inspired openness. But with Paul, people look at it and go, hmm. What's the con here, McCartney? What, <laughs> yeah. what, what, what are you trying to pull here? Are these are these posed? Are these are these you know cooked up by a publicist? But very naturally, he is one of the most open and uh, revealing in terms of some of those intimate moments of his life. Like I don't think I'd be comfortable putting any of this in in, in an album. And he's one of the most famous men in the world right now. Yeah, this is such a period where he's extremely open. And I think it's so unfortunate that he was so, you know, had such negative criticism at this yeah. time, because I think it closed, shut him down a little bit. You know, the the McCartney and Ram McCartney that we get is very open with his feelings and open, you know, it's kind of his heart is on his sleeves much more than and even actually wildlife. And to some extent, Red Rose Speedway, and I think it shots and especially the fact that band on the rum is so beloved and he got so much critical praise it's like oh that's what they want that's that's Mm -hmm. my feeling anyways can i just um i'm sorry to interrupt i'm trying to wait my turn but no go go for it (laughs) okay okay (laughs) i just i just kind of wanted to comment on the like i'm very frustrated by the whole narrative of like this was unfinished and like he should have spent more time on them and stuff like that just because it just would never occur to me to look at it that way. <laughs> like it, it just, I just wouldn't, I just don't process art in that fashion. Like it's very weird to me. Like d- does anybody ever listen to the velvet underground and think like, you guys should have rehearsed more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's so ridiculous. And, and like mm. to the, this album is special because of what it is. Yeah. Well, like- in the same way that with the Paul is dead people, they say, oh, well, if you listen to this backwards, it says this. And you're now automatically predis- predisposed to see it in that way. You've been kind of trained in that manner. Yeah, you've been uh, conned into, into thinking yeah. all these things. That's what I'm saying. It's like these narratives have just put thoughts into people's heads that don't need to be there. 
I agree with that. I yeah. agree with that. That's the problem is a lot of the thoughts have been placed into people's head and then they read it. And this is no criticism of people. It's <laughs> right. like when, when, when you read it like over and over again, it's like, oh, I guess some people have given this a lot of thought. And, you know, if you're a casual fan, I mean, that's the first thing you pick up, right? Yeah. But I will say this. I, w- I will say that, like, I remember the first time I heard this album when I was younger and I had a certain expectation of what I thought Paul McCartney's music is, you know, because I'm familiar with his more mainstream hits and, and whatever. And I, I did think like, Oh, that wasn't what I expected. You know, it sounds kind of down homey or, you know, whatever, however I would have processed it at age 12 or whatever. So I do get that reaction from people, but, it, I, but I just think that that's unfair. You can't judge a person based on your expectations. Like he's an artist. He's going to do what he does. Either you get it or you don't. Right. Can I just add to, to that is I think, you know, Sam, to your point before about John, the, the press speaking about John's artwork differently. I think that um, Paul often introduces new ideas or through his music, you know, will set sort of, will change course and introduce something new. And people often don't like it. So this was a case of they didn't expect that. Right. They expected Abbey Road again. And he was like, yeah, but I'm not there as an artist. I'm onwards. And, you know, basically I found this in the early 2000s and I loved it because it sounded like indie music. Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in, in some ways it's like, it was a little bit of a ahead of its time or a little bit in advance of where the critics were, their expectations. And unfortunately, it is never given this kind of um, moniker of being, you know, instead of being unfinished, maybe it's just it was <laughs> it was early indie and people didn't really expect that and didn't really get it, you know? Right. That's more my point is like if I if I put it on now, like, you know, sight unseen or whatever, and I listen to it, I think, oh, lo-fi. And then like if I open up the gatefold and whatever, I'm like, cool, indie. You know, like, yeah, it, it wouldn't even occur to me to to be like, well, this doesn't sound like uh, say, say, say or you know, whatever. It's just like that's a weird that's a weird world that people live in. Where they're, you know what I mean? But they do that to Paul a lot. Don't you find this isn't Eleanor yeah. Rigby? It's like, no shit. It's not a Eleanor Rigby. Why would it be? Right. Well, I came into these two, like the first two McCartney albums completely unsullied by like anything else right like i was into the beatles because of anthology and my parents had records and they had a ram and a mccartney that were in decent condition our record player at the time was broken but because i was really getting starting to get into music and the beatles in particular i wanted to listen to their beatle albums but i also was curious about the solo albums that they had because like i saw the whole history like you know the anthology history of just laid out all at once So I was like, oh, okay. So they went through this insane evolution and then they broke up and then they started doing stuff outside of the Beatles. I can see from these records we have, I want to hear it. And I was really curious. And so like, because of my begging and whining, my stepdad found like a used record player, a used turntable. And so I started, because I had like a shitty little kid record player in my room and they were like, you are not playing our records on that thing. (laughs) So so that was kind of like, I listened to the first two McCartney solo albums without the baggage and i loved them like you know i was not old enough to form a really sophisticated opinion about them but i just loved them i thought they were amazing 
And then like my dad is he was 12 when McCartney came out and my dad was a cool little kid. Like he had a cool older brother who was like a real hippie who went and traveled around and like met some famous people in the 60s. You know, and he was kind of like a a jazz drummer, I guess you would say, like because their dad taught them how to drum when they were kids. And then my uncle was also a pianist. But like he was really into music at a young age. And so he loved drumming and he was in this little like kid garage band. They called it the Peace Love Band. (laughs) It was like him and his girlfriend and another guy. um, And they like decorated his drum head, like his bass drum to say the peace and love band <laughs> and early Ringo, and, oh my god and he, <laughs> right right peace love band peace and love but like he loved mccartney and so like I, I was recently talking to my dad about mccartney and i was like what did you love about it like when you were a little 12 year old little like music mm-hmm. nerd you know and he was like i just loved how earthy it was i loved how yeah. honest it was. it was gritty it was honest it was earthy it was like he was just like I was completely seduced and taken in by it. So I feel everything, like yeah, everything that they wanted let it be to be. You yeah, know? right. I just I feel like when people got to listen to this and they didn't have that baggage, I think especially maybe someone who was younger at the time, like my dad was, you know, like a preteen. So he wasn't sullied and weighed down by all that yeah. baggage because my twelve-year-old dad was not reading Rolling Stone magazine. <laughs> you know, like, he didn't have any money to go buy magazines, you know. But like he had older brothers who had records and would go buy records, you know. So it was a little. And then like me as just somebody who was exploring my parents' record collection, I didn't have any of that stuff going into it because I hadn't read the Beatle books yet. Quite, you know, like other than Hunter's book. Do you not find that to be so liberating? Because, like, I mean, one of my favorite things about my podcast, like, in the way that I'm not completionist, I'm going through the albums chronologically and exploring them with the listeners. And outside of my relationship with my late father and band on the run, I've gone into all of this cold, like, completely cold. And not knowing that Paul's supposedly uncool, despite <laughs> all of his number one records and singles and you know, you know, best-selling tours that everyone saw and everyone wanted to buy a ticket for. Outside of all of that, apparently it wasn't very fun being a McCartney fan, but I don't know how that was ever the case with the quality of the music that was coming out. I know that if I was living there in between 71 and 79, my God, I would be buying everything that Wings put out and I would be very happy with it and not having that preconceived notion that this is apparently bad has allowed me to explore so much more of what I loved in the Beatles which was cool you know the reason I love the Beatles is is because I I, I just love Paul I love everything he does from the grand music to the weird experimental stuff to his corny rock to his legitimately hard rock there's nothing that he does that doesn't make me want to just simply get more of it. Yeah, yeah, me too, man. Same. And like... Warts and all, warts and all. Yeah, 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 seriously. Well, here's the thing. It's always treated as like some kind of offense when like these musicians experiment and have an exploration with something that like so neil young did this album called trans in the early 80s that was like his direct um 
response to hearing Kraftwerk's Computer World. <laughs> like he was just he he was like, "This is fucking dope. I'm gonna play with. I want a vocoder." That sounds incredible. I need to listen to this album. It's amazing. It was so hated, like by critics. Everybody hated it, but I love it. And it's like, but why isn't something just allowed to be an exploration? It's always just seen as like a black mark by these critics. Right. 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 Versus sort of an evolution that they need, they need to have different periods and some are high periods. Some you like better than others, you know? And um, I, go ahead. Yeah. And, and some just like tickle you in a way that they, that they don't for other people. It's like the, um, the beach boys album. What's the electronic one? Fuck. I forget what it's called now. The Beatles, the beach boys love you. If, oh, yeah. if, if you like that album, you know, it's like that says a lot about you. If, you know, <laughs> like some people are just like, yes, fuck, I love this album. And some people are like, what is this trash? <laughs> I mean, we're probably not going to get to it today, but how do we all feel about McCartney 2? Are we all agreeing? Oh, love it. love it. Oh, oh, one God. of my faves. Please. One of my faves. Oh. Yeah. Check My Machine, Blue oh. Sway, the Richard Niles Orchestra version. Secret friends, all of those it, incredible. Sam, we incredible. could we could do two hours easy on McCartney too. Oh, yeah. it's so good! It's, oh, it's, it's amazing, so good. It's magnificent. And it's shocking to me that I continue every time I hear it discussed anywhere. It's like Miss Giant, like even the Take It Away guys were like, I don't know, there's nothing to like. It's like what, what? Like it drives me crazy. But even, even yeah. Apod did a terrible episode on it, you know, which I am actually telling him, please. With Beardy Man. I was like, what the fuck, Beardy Man? It's McCartney's weird. What? What? Yeah, I was, I, I, I nearly fell off my bike when I heard it. I had to stop listening to it. I was so annoyed. <laughs> <laughs> nothing better than when there's a Beatles podcast that annoys you into turning it off. Like a Republican, I like to make myself angry recreationally. You know? Oh, liberal, liberals do that too. Yeah, <laughs> listening. We all do that. Yeah. But here's the thing too, though, is that, you know, when you read books right now, you get the sense that in the 70s, like it was so uncool to be a Wings fan. Maybe it was, I don't know. But it seems like they were having a pretty good time. You know, like the thing is a lot of people bought their albums. Well, and so, you know, there was a lot of people who just loved his music, enjoyed it. Like he had tons of power as an artist at that point. So I think, you know, how he's being viewed is a bit skewed, too. And if I may say, well, like, yeah. I don't consider, you know, basic white boys to be the arbiter of cool. So who the fuck is defining cool? Yeah. Talia, what do you think of the artwork? I love it. Um, so the cherries image I found really striking when I first saw it. You know, I was like that, you know, you've got that like white on red contrasted with the black. Um, those are called yeah. maraschino cherries. They're like these like candied cherries in like a red goopy sugar shit that you're <laughs> supposed to use for like cocktails. And But I used to love eating these cherries like right out of the jar when I was a kid. Um, they they taste like pure ash sugar and nothing else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. yeah, they are not, they don't really taste like a real cherry anymore. They have kind of like a weird, like waxy outer texture to the skin and then they're kind of like squishy. Um, but yeah, like I just thought it was funny. Like when I was a kid, I thought it was um, kind of fun and like rebellious and messy, like in mm -hmm. a way. And, you know, I loved your metaphor, Diana, of like, life is like a bowl of cherries. I'd never thought of that before. That's really cool. But yeah, like, um, I like just kind of like the jaunty um, 
quality to it. It's really neat. And I actually like since, you know, you've seen pictures of Linda taking the picture, like she's sitting in that little sundress. She's barefoot again, like sexy sundress, barefoot Linda with her (laughs) instrument in her hands. Like that's a beautiful, sexy, lovely image of her, like taking those pictures in Jamaica. I love the gatefold. I love um, like, I think it's a really lovely mix of like, this is my life. These are the people that are the most important and dear to me in the world. I'm also still a sexy beast. Don't forget about that. <laughs> yeah. Don't remember, like the picture of him sipping the two straws and like him oh, at the, yeah. the beach oh, yeah. in Corfu, which we've talked about on ACOM. You guys talked about like the transformation that he went through on that vacation. Oh my mm-hmm. God. Yeah, like, um, yeah, he totally, love, he's like, I'm a little bit dorky. I'm a little bit dad. I'm a little bit sex little, pot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's all of those things. But I think it's just, it's beautiful. Like I love the standing stone picture i love um heather oh, like pretending to be a dog like heather's oh, got a so, little like so cute i know like a little paint on her nose and she's playing down on the floor with martha like i'm also a doggy you know because kids do that and it's cute um him like with the nail and like a hammer i'm not sure exactly what he's doing to the window but like that's but that's sexy as fuck like a guy yeah. who yes, can get down sweet. and dirty like he's a rock star right like he could really pay people to do that for him but he was like building <laughs> tables and shit like <laughs> they were living in like a shack with no electricity out in the middle of nowhere and he was building shit that's, that's diy you know it's, 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 it's the beginning of, yeah. of every hallmark romance movie is like <laughs> bearded drifter drive town yeah <laughs> Anyone who's listened to UASLA knows that Paul loves to uh, cut a good piece of wood with a table saw. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm just loving every little element in this gatefold. It's a beautiful collage. And like, you know, like you said, Sam, if John Lennon did this, everyone would be talking about how open and unguarded he's being about his life and he's just letting us in. And that's exactly what Paul's doing. Yet it's always spun is like, eh. What angle do you have, McCartney? It's just like, I don't know, if you can just sit back and look at it and appreciate it. It's a beautiful, gorgeous collage. It's a great piece of art. And I love the back picture with Paul, with Mary in his jacket. He's literally wearing his children around. Oh, that's adorable. I love it. And I love how he says... It is sexy. Yeah, it's like sexy dad. And then it says instruments and voices by Paul, photos and harmonies by Linda, and there's a little heart. And that's, just, that's sweet. I know. I love that too. I love that too. So precious. It is. It's a beautiful album cover. I love it. I was going to say on the, um, I have my vinyl here, and on the back of my vinyl, somebody had written on the bay, on the top of Mary's head, somebody written Clifton. <laughs> I guess that was their baby or something. <laughs> oh, cute. Because kids used to write their names on their records too, probably. So it's it, probably Clifton's. Yeah, copy. that's that's true. Because I have I have gotten some albums where people just have just written their own names on it, but there's like a little arrow pointing to the baby's head, so it's. <laughs> <laughs> On my dad's copy of Sergeant Pepper, it's got his neighbor's name on it. <laughs> What's the neighbor's name on it? And he went, Cut, cut. 
I, well, it's like, um, yeah, the, the acetate of like the, in spite of all the danger, like it's kind of like that where Paul and John paid for somebody to record them and give them an acetate of their song. And like, they were like, it, Paul had it for one week, John had it for <laughs> yeah. one week, and then some guy had it for like 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> like Rod Davis or somebody. Yeah, like one of the Quarry Men guys. <laughs> like, yeah, it's fine now. That, that is the ultimate story to tell down the pub, though. Oh, lad, by the, by the way, I've got the Beatles' first song on acetate. <laughs> I don't think we should be announcing that. There'd be a lot of people trashing your home for it. It'd be a little oh, scary. Instantly. Like, it's, I, I, don't, I, I wouldn't care who's home, what witnesses are there. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I, ha- I have um, a T-shirt of, this, of the back cover. Where it says McCartney really? with the picture. Oh. Yeah, I was so excited. I was so excited to find it. I got it at the um, the Beatles store in London, actually. It was the only oh. Paul shirt that they had. Um, and it's beautiful, although it's like a it's a men's shirt. It's just like that boxy unisex shirt. So I'm still planning on like what I'm gonna do to it to make it more feminine. Like <laughs> I've been I've been masterminding this for weeks <laughs> trying to figure out what sleeves and I'm going to put on it and all that sort of stuff. Anyways, if I could, I just want to talk for a second about what Diana brought up in terms of the bowl of cherries and stuff like that. One thing I hear about, about people, when people talk about Paul a lot, I, I see this narrative constantly where, be, you know, because Paul doesn't go out and talk about his songs in terms of like, this is the meaning of this, you know, this is what this symbolizes. This is what this metaphor is used for because he doesn't talk at length about, you know, explaining his songs to people. Mm -hmm. People just sort of assume that it's like flat or vacuous or devoid of meaning, which is, is maybe one of the dumbest things that I've in all of Beatledom. It's like, so, so fucking stupid. And, and like sometimes, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul will say like, oh yes, this was unconscious or, or someone will talk about him and they'll be like, oh yes, there is multiple meanings to this, but Paul didn't put them in there consciously. And I, I'm kind of just always kind of like, what do you think art is? <laughs> like, yeah. I honestly don't understand what they're even talking about. Like, do you think art is, you have a, per, you have an agenda, like, written out before everything you do and then you like meticulously go in like that's a commercial that's not a piece of art I don't like I I don't think you know what you're talking about and like I really wish people would stop saying that it's it like it hurts my brain to hear that like (laughs) Paul's music is so encoded with so many amazing and beautiful themes and and those themes pop very easily when you just sort of sit with them and and like he told you what this is home family love you know what i'm saying yeah and all that comes out even in even when he doesn't have lyrics yeah it's just very weird to me how people are just like well i i don't he didn't tell me what the meaning was so there must not be any meaning right well and and and, you know the, the worst is ram is constantly considered superficial 
which boggles my mind because to me it's such a hugely personal as with this album it's such a hugely personal album and it's got you know it's because he's applied a little bit of artistry to the songs to not be totally transparent although I think that the emotions are very much there but they you know it's shocking to me that that's the easy quick interpretation as well as just to to add to that that I heard some people talking about this cover on a different podcast and one of them did sort of touch on the idea of bowl of cherries and they were like do you think he thought of that and they were like no (laughs) what what the fuck i mean who do you think this person like how do you think he got to be the most famous artist in the world you know do you think that he is not constantly thinking about these things i mean he's an artist of course he's thought about it you know well i think they you know somehow at some point they they began to equate the sort of art of self-promotion with art itself or something i don't i don't mm. it's some kind of weird hoodwink yes 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 i agree and in the early 70s it seems to be like if if it wasn't political and if it didn't have a message it wasn't or something like that or if it wasn't like deeply honest and personal it wasn't art i i think mm. i honestly like i think it's a matter of literal versus um yeah versus yeah. metaphorical and right. I, you know again most people aren't good with metaphors everybody everybody understands a literal definition right (laughs) you know what I mean metaphor takes a little bit more not just brain power but it it also takes a little bit more training you know and it takes time too you have to really sit with something to to find those things right And, and this album cover is fairly it's a metaphor you know it's metaphorical so which again, everybody doesn't have to have to be able to do or even care about. That's fine. But like, seriously, if you're if you're going to run your mouth about music or fancy yourself like a critic or a reviewer or writer, like you have to be better. <laughs> you know, it's like if that's your literal job. Then that's so dumb. So much criticism towards Paul, I think, subconsciously comes from the fact that. People just can't admit that they can't do what he does. That's right. You know, yeah. the idea that there is someone who is so impossibly fantastic and charming and funny and creative and can write songs and he can act somewhat <laughs> and he can paint and he's great in interviews and he does all of this, you know, very much to a greater degree than, say, a lot of my friends who are fabulous virtuoso musicians. I don't know, I don't understand how could they have put their 10,000 hours in to be doing what they're doing. It must be impossible. It must be subconscious. It has to be by accident. It can't it cannot be planned. Because if it was planned, then what the fuck am I doing with my life, you know? Well it but uh, being plan it, it you know, being planned is cruder than just being an artist. That's what I'm yeah, saying. And, like, and living living in the moment. I mean just to reconcile these things, like I think that Paul in the moment had this inspiration to do I think that that you can do a metaphor and be living in the moment. Like, I think that that's how well, he plays. Yes, exactly. Like, that. that is what my point is. My point is, is that you don't have to be conscious of something that you're creating at the moment. You know what I mean? Like, you can, you can look at it afterwards and then glean meaning from what you've already done, which is how I think Paul, I think Paul approaches it. He goes in blind. He's talked about it, actually, it, and it, he just has a different approach. He kind of gets into a like a, a like a mental safe space where he's not judging yeah. himself. He just goes in, 
does what he does. And then it's only when you step back and you say, oh, shit, look at all that stuff I put in there. Because you can, if you're just calculated all the time, then, you, like I said, it's not it's not a free expression. It's ju- it's it's a commercial. It's something that you're, you know, planned like it, it's more uh, calculated. I don't think he's calculated in that way. He, tr- I think he trusts himself, his artistic self, you know, when he gets into this, like you said, the safe space, I think yeah. he trusts that what will come out will be artistic. Yeah. And he, he doesn't, and it is, is a space without judgment, which is why he probably doesn't like to, you know, that's probably some of his faults with lyrics occasionally is he, he'll let them sit because he does trust that most yeah. of them will be successful. And I think most of them are successful. He just yeah. occasionally, they're not, you know? I, I agree. But, and I also kind of like, I understand his disinclination to go back and edit them. I mean, yes. I mean, you know, everybody constantly talks about like, well, all oh, that all needed to be edited or, or worse yet, he needed Lenin to come and tell uh. him no. No, but that's what the problem is. No one's telling him no. It's like, fuck you. Why does somebody have to tell him no? Let him be. Let him live and do his art. He's not a bad schoolboy who needs a spanking. Jesus. Right, so that, so that he gets it right just the way that the audience wants it. I know. Right? It's crazy the way they talk about him. It's like, dance, monkey. We want the thing that we want you to do. Fuck you. Come on, produce. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, like I went into this with, um, you know, with no preconceived notions about what it was going to be other than like I was used to the music of the Beatles. But like because the Beatles were presented to me all at once in the form of the anthology and then like I got to hear all their music at the same time. So I had no idea what this album was going to be because like, well, you know, the Beatles have so much variety in their music then. So it didn't shock me in any great way. And again, like I am a 90s kid. So I was growing up in the 90s. I was hearing stuff on the radio from time to time that was like lo-fi kind of indie rock stuff. You know, and I grew up in a college town and we have like a community radio station. And we also have like a college radio station. So like in my parents' car, we were listening more to those than like the top 40 or whatever. Because like this town is small enough that we didn't have... It was not like a tiny, tiny town, but we didn't have like a big time radio station here that, you know, there's one in like the big city nearby, but it doesn't pick up well. So like I heard some stuff on the radio that was like lo-fi and indie. So it didn't shock me or anything, but it did surprise me in a really good way because I was, you know, a kid. Um, I actually thought it was really sweet and cool that he was like he had this motif of home, family and love with the theme of the album. Um, although like the album that consumers picked up didn't have the press release in it. So I didn't know about that part, but I like, I picked up on that from the pictures. I thought it was really sweet and cool. I was like, this guy is cool. He's sexy. (laughs) He's got everything. And then like so much variety in one album. Like it's insane. It's just like any other McCartney album, but like every one of them is so special. And so like, I thought for lo-fi, you know, the production is really nice. Um, I think the songs really like melt right into each other. I think the lovely Linda is just really charming and sweet. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, like I kind of like the idea of, you know, the, like the, what people call the unfinished things like song fragments or whatever they call them. I like having these little segues in between tracks. I think that's really cool. Like a link or something. Um, 
I love the glasses, like hot as sunglasses. Um, I love the glasses part. I thought it was just like really weird and really cool. Um, junk I'd actually heard on anthology. So I was like, oh, cool. <laughs> you know, like I'd heard him like doing the demo version of junk, like the Isher demo. Um, I just, I love all of the tracks. Um, I love all the instrumentals on it. And of course, like, I love the way he ended the album with Maybe I'm Amazed and Karina Crory kind of like back to back. I thought that was really cool. So I loved it from the start. I still love it today. Why, um, do, why don't we talk more about Karina Crory? I don't, oh my God. I don't understand. Like who, the, no offense to George Harrison, but like, who cares about all things most past? Karina Crory. Oh I know, God. I know. It's, it's, it's the hottest track ever. It's so good. I mean, that blows away anything that anybody else put out in 1970, Beatle wise, anyway. Yeah. You know, you know, I hear so much hatred for that one. I, I, I absolutely, it's so hot. Yeah. I don't get that. I don't get that at all. Oh, no, no, no. The, uh, everyone, the views of another kind of mind do not necessarily reflect the views of this podcast. Uh, no, Creed of it's fun as a whole with the album, but you cannot tell me you'd put this on a random McCartney playlist and gladly hear it on shuffle in between two of the greats. What? I would. Yeah. Of course I would. No. Yeah. Oh, oh, no. Oh, yeah. Wait, how? how? Oh, it's so experimental. Oh, it's, it's amazing. It's so interesting. It's sexy. Like, yeah. That, it is sexy. Yeah. Like, it's got everything. It's a beautiful instrumental. I uh, just listen to it more. It's really cool. Yeah, what's not to like about it? The like all the vocalizations are awesome. Like oh, yeah. the, the the sexy build up, the fucking arrows. He's shooting arrows. It's amazing. Yes. Nah, it's one of those McCartney songs where the trivia and the and the kind of backstory behind the song is more interesting than the song. Itself. No, no way. Because I again, because I didn't know any oh, of that. We got beef, everyone. We got beef. I just want to like strap you into a chair and make you listen to it over and over again until you get it. That's well. All. First of all, have you been sober listening to it? Because you can always take another crack at it. Maybe some mescaline next next time. Yeah, or, uh, maybe you need. Well, that's something. why I like it because it's kind of psychedelic, like in its own way. I I always liked things that had that kind of psychedelic bent to them. Honestly, you're gonna laugh. I'd just put a cover of Lucille at the end. I would have been happier. Oh my god! Oh, oh no. Jesus! Oh god! Oh, oh my god! <laughs> what <laughs> more fights? <laughs> Get that Oof. Okay. Well, I I, I like uh, I for me I, I will say that this album was a grower. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it clean. Uh. No, just because it it came it wasn't like I you know when I started my McCartney journey it wasn't my first album you know it's like I I've I've heard all these albums at different periods in my life. And, you know, like I said, this one didn't, it, it, it didn't initially pop for me because of the things that I mentioned. There's not, um, there's not a lot of three and a half minute, you know, number one hits on it. So I had to kind of mature into it a little bit, but, and then it's, it's always said about this album that like, well, the, the the songs are really weak. There's not really any strong songs other than like written in fucking books. There's no real good songs on it except maybe I'm amazed, and I was and so I sort of was like, okay, well, I guess that's true, but actually that would be something as good and 
every night's really good and man it was only as good too and teddy boy and junk and maybe yeah. actually they're all really good it's like a lot of really <laughs> good strong songs on here and then you know as you said i'm i'm into the instrumentals and stuff too and like i love the the like the lovely linda you know again and this this happens often with paul, with paul too for me a lot of paul's songs are instantly accessible um, and then there are other types of songs that the first time I listen to them, I'm like, that's all right. And then the second time I'm like, oh, that actually is pretty good. And the third time I'm like, oh, I'm obsessed with the song. Um, but Lovely Linda was kind of one of those to me that at first I was like, eh, whatever. But then it like the it, it kind of got in my head and just sort of stuck there. Like that little melody is great. And I don't mind that it's not fleshed out into a huge long song. Like sometimes you don't, that's all he had to say, you know? Yeah, and you've got the 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 working classical version as well that does extend it about ten seconds, and you realise that it didn't need to go anywhere. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is what it is. And like this, I mean, here's again, like I don't understand why we don't talk about these things. (laughs) Like this, in terms of like these small snippets of songs that are where Paul has sort of trimmed the fat on all of these. He's just kind of given the good part of the song. Right. They don't go on for especially like this is an era where people were doing self-indulgent fucking jams for 12 minutes. Yeah. He went, some people. Some people. Like he went totally the opposite direction. He was like, I'm going to make, you know, this pastiche of like little cut up songs. And like, that's amazing. Like, do you ever listen to like a Guided by Voices album and you're like, oh, I really wish that they had that song would be, you know, it's like they've multiple songs that are like. 60 seconds long but they're good as is they don't all have to be beefed up into into three and a half minute pop songs it's like you just don't have to do that you can also go in the other direction you just give us a snippet if you want it's kind of revolutionary are there is there anything else like this album in 1970 nope i think it's a standalone i think it's uh it was ahead of its time it's one of a kind I mean, he's, At that time. he's laying down the template for a lot of stuff that happened in the 90s. Oh, yes. <laughs> Again, I, I'm, I'm just baffled when I hear, when I read reviews of, like, Beatle and, and, like, Solo. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's different. Maybe it's different now. Like, like. Maybe the modern take on this is a, is a lot different, but the old guys are still writing the old views. It's like they're going down with that ship. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. the hill they want to die on. Right. Well, this, was, this was my university Paul McCartney album. Like, I've definitely listened to this on rainy nights and sleepless nights before, and you can just play it over and over and over again. It's, it is very relaxing. You know, it's a, it's a fun album to have on. It, it does create a nice environment to exist in while it's playing. I do think there were other singer-songwriters that were starting to do this thing at this time, but I think Paul was really early. And, you know, and again, they're celebrated for what they did a couple of years later. So maybe it's just the fact that he is, it's expectations. It's that the public doesn't really understand how to process some of this stuff yet. Yeah. I mean, he was, I will say that I I can recall way back in the 90s and the the aughts that from where I was standing as a as a younger person he was the cool one i mean he he was cool in like sort of this snobby music circles that i 
kind of operated in. <laughs> Which is why, it, which is why it's always kind of a giant eye roll to me when they're like, "Paul's not the cool one." I'm like, okay, <laughs> that depends on who you talk to, but whatever. Um, so I did see a lot of to people who like McCartney, they they adore him, you know. Yeah. So I do feel like he did get a lot of credit for that for that type of stuff in, especially like post, you know. Uh, 2000 well that's now yes at, at the time not so much oh not until recent i mean considering in the grand thing grand scheme of things it took 30 years mm-hmm. it's it's it, mm-hmm. it's relatively recent history mm-hmm. but how how what how much does that say how much that it took him 30 years to get credit like that in itself is a statement on how ahead of its time this album was yeah how many other people were doing the whole I play every instrument on this album shtick as well? Like, you know, Prince would come to define that in his career, but before this, was anyone else really doing that? I've heard this debated. I think, you know, there may, may have been one or two, but, you know, just even the fact that Todd people Rundgren. Access, yeah, yeah, but at that, this time? Um, I mean, it wasn't he, he was later, right? Yeah, I know he does it, but uh, I don't know. Like the thing is, is that nobody had even access to equipment. Never mind the ability to play every. The, the that was pretty difficult in in itself. Yeah. For. Yeah, I mean the the thing is that most of this was recorded on four track. I mean, I do think I know that he went into the studio and you know remixed some shit, but the basic tracks I think were done on four track. So. Well, some, a couple of them were done in the studio, right? He did go yeah. to the studio for some of the bigger, for a couple of the songs. But but the majority of it, yeah. I mean, you don't need that many tracks. <laughs> if you're, you know, to do, to do something like that. I mean, I'm sure he bounced down a few tracks, but whatever. My, my, my point is, my point is, is that I don't, I don't know how accessible four track recorders were to the general public in 1970 not very you had to be a rock star to own one yeah but i mean if you can but but if you if you can make a if you have access to even a tape recorder you can you can loop something and then bounce it down yeah that's true it's just easier you know on a four track you've got four dedicated tracks but you're still gonna if you want to put more than four tracks onto the recording you're still gonna have to bounce them down and then, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the point is not that he, you know, he, he was special because he had access to stuff. I, my point was that, you know, I doubt there, there was much precedence in this because people didn't have access to this. But beyond that, I just love the fact that he owned the fact that he could do everything and was like, fuck that. I'm going to do this. All I can do everything. I got a woman who can, I can harmonize with and, you know, really just created something new, you know? Yeah. And how lovely are their harmonies, too? Amazing. Oh my God. That is something that drives me crazy that we'll obviously talk about with Ram, but that when people say, I just wish the Beatles were harmonized. I'm like, why? Why? Oh, this is Paul and Linda sound great together. Linda's sound, like Linda's voice is a cornerstone to the sound of Wings. Like, yes. you could not have yeah. Wings without her voice. Absolutely. Part of the core trio, 100%. 100%. And I love Linda's voice. As someone who can't sing, 
it's fun to have an atonal part of the song to sing along to. That's quite <laughs> quite inclusive, you know. <laughs> yeah, but like, but but like, ato- atonal points are kind of that's kind of subversive too. I mean, it know, is. Again, it is everything about he's expected. He he's subverting so many expectations with this album, and again. If we weren't all fucking dirtbags, we would be talking about it that way. Like, why, I don't understand why nobody wants a champion this great artist. Why are we just constantly, like, every single book just, like, turning all of his positives into negatives? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's true in terms of he took, he didn't, it's not like he was making do with Linda's voice. He liked it. He liked the the quality of the tone. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he saw that as a separate sound that he liked. And could work with, and I think it works incredibly well, right? No, you were talking about one of your episodes about genius clusters, which was an incredibly interesting concept to me, and the fact that Paul happened to fall in love with and marry the woman whose voice, who, who, despite being completely atonal, perfectly matches with him, is one of the most serendipitous part of Wing's whole history. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, she sings pretty on key. Most, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a couple of things I think that are deliberately like flat. I agree. In him, I agree. Yeah, I think she's. I think okay. she's specifically coached that way by Paul because that's the sound yeah. he wants. Yeah. 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 Okay. It was like because listen, listen to another day. You know, like she's per, yeah. she's harmonizing perfectly. You know, and that's that is it requires a lot of singing ability. But there's there's a reason why. Do you love me like you yeah. know you ought to? There's a reason why it's in that pit, right? Because yeah. she's she's complaining. Right. She's supposed to be the complaining girlfriend, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, like you know, Paul knew exactly how to write a song for Ringo's specific vocal, vocal yep. range. He would know exactly how to use Linda in any sort of given situation. Oh, he knows how to do everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he's amazing. Including building tables and shit, at, like a cabin in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> no, but the, the idea of the DIY is really important. You know, this yeah. idea of like independence that he has. And it's like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to count on anyone. I'm going to do shit myself, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which means building my home, building my furniture, building my family, and doing the whole album myself. You know, it's like, it is an emancipation, like cry for freedom that we see for years to come with him, right? Yeah. Well, and he, oh, he's an auteur. I mean, this is, this is a celebration of Paul McCartney as auteur, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. I was going to say, like, that notion of independence, I guess that explains why that photo of Paul chiseling at that window in that hose is so sexy, I guess. Yes, yes. I can fix this window, damn it. And he does. He does. I mean, can you imagine John Lennon doing that, except as a parody? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> God bless oh, John. No. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I just like that idea of him <laughs> John doing handiwork. <laughs> John is a handyman. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, not. A man must break his back to earn his day of leisure. (laughs) And that's pretty much where the conversation ends, folks. We did go on to speak about a few other things off air. 
uh, like the various incarnations of Wings, McCartney's prowess as an impersonator, and maybe one of my run-ins with Jeffrey Giuliano. But yeah, at the time, I thought that that was going to be a single episode and that my wonderful guests were going to come back and we'd stitch together the two conversations into one episode at a later date. But as we all know now, though, this is going to be part one of an ongoing side series, so you will have to settle for the a lack of a proper goodbye and closer for this episode. Thank you all for listening to the show, folks. I hope you all enjoyed it. Please let me know your thoughts on this episode and especially what you think about all of Paul McCartney's future album covers. We covered McCartney 1 here today, as we know, but anything from Ram onwards, let me know your thoughts. Send it in to paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Keep up to date with us on our Twitter, which is at McCartneyPod. Please leave us a five-star review, and hey, maybe even considering joining our Patreon page, as always. Next episode, I think it's either going to be on the Ruttles or Live and Let Die. Um, I've also got a Listen With Sam Band on the Run episode that I've essentially had to re-record due to my appearance on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews podcast. Go and check out that episode as well. There's another plug for you. Two other big projects that I've been working on during my break amidst these smaller episodes. Firstly has to be the 1989 World Tour, which is going to be paired with a part two on Tripping the Live Fantastic with my wonderful friend Dylan Seavey, who we had on for our uh, Let It Be film review. And secondly, I really have to get around to my two-part Give My Regards to Broad Street episode, which has a part two conversation with Kit O'Toole that I recorded absolutely months ago. Huge shout out to Kit, she's a wonderfully patient woman. Like I say though, there's much more Paul or Nothing to come over the next few weeks. Uh, there's part two of this chat with another kind of mind. I've got a Wings Greatest episode that I just recorded last night. And I might even be doing another Two Legs collaboration talking about the Phil Ramone sessions, but it's not the Two Legs host that's been on this show before. How does that sound? Pretty darn good? Yeah, I agree. Anyway, folks, I can hear Denny Lane in the background right now. So thanks for listening. Thank you to Phoebe, Diana and Talia for coming on the show. Make sure you check out AKOM. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry Krishna. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>